Tonight we'll be looking to Leviticus chapter 22. And Leviticus chapter 22, just to kind of sketch the lay of the land, can be divided into, into four main sections and then a conclusion there, uh, there at the end of the chapter. In, uh, in verses 1 through 9, we see how the priests are forbidden to eat of the holy gifts when they are in an unclean condition. In verses 10 through 16, we read of who is and who is not allowed to partake in the eating of the holy gifts that belong to the priests and also to the priest's household. Verses 17 through 25, we read the requirements for the animals that were to be sacrificed and specifically of the defects which would render an animal unfit to be sacrificed. Verses 26 through 31, there are a few more rules in regard to the sacrifices and then verses 32 and 33 wrap up the the chapter with a summary statement as to... uh, why the statutes here must be observed, namely, because the Lord's name must not be profaned and would be profaned were these things not to be observed. Rather, the Lord must be honored as holy by the nation, among the nation. He is the one who had brought them up from Egypt to be their God. He is their Redeemer. They were to honor Him, therefore, and set Him apart as holy. And so, for our purposes tonight, we'll walk through those, uh, those four sections and observe some of the salient features of the chapter, and then we'll try to hone in on uh, one particular area of, of application and draw in from, from 1 Peter chapter 1 uh, here when we, uh, when we reach the end of our discussion on Leviticus 22. So first, let's, let's look to the first nine verses of Leviticus 22. Moses writes under the inspiration of the Spirit, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Tell Aaron and his sons to be careful with the holy gifts of the sons of Israel, which they dedicate to me, so as not to profane my holy name. I am the Lord. Say to them, If any man among all your descendants throughout your generations approaches the holy gifts which the sons of Israel dedicate to the Lord, while he has an uncleanness, that person shall be cut off, From before me, I am the Lord. No man of the descendants of Aaron, who is a leper or who has a discharge, may eat of the holy gifts until he is clean. And if uh, if one touches anything made unclean by a corpse, or if a man has a seminal omission, or if a man touches any teeming things by which he is made unclean, or any man by whom he is made unclean, whatever his uncleanness, a person who touches such shall be unclean until evening and shall not eat of the holy gifts unless he has bathed his body in water. But when the sun sets, he will be clean, and afterward he shall eat of the holy gifts, for it is his food. He shall not eat an animal which dies or is torn by beasts, becoming unclean by it. I am the Lord. They shall therefore keep my charge so that they will not bear sin because of it, and die thereby, because they profane it. I am the Lord who sanctifies them. Now, again, in these first nine verses, we're given the causes for which a priest would be rendered unclean and therefore unfit to partake of those holy gifts that belonged 
to the priests. In the words of verse 2, they were to be careful with the holy gifts of the sons of Israel. And the reason why is that they were not to profane the Lord's holy name. They were to honor the Lord as holy, and therefore in their uncleanness were not to partake of the holy gifts. They were, in this sense, not to serve in their capacity as priests while they were unclean. The sources of uncleanness are listed there for us in verses 4 and 5. There's a man who is a leper or a man who has a a discharge. These would be seemingly uncleannesses that rendered one unclean for some long period of time, whereas the subsequent uncleannesses seem to be something that, uh, that could come upon a man and he could get it dealt with potentially that day by evening uh, at sunset and by bathing. Those cases which would seem to render a short-term uncleanness is one who had touched a corpse or one who had a seminal emission, who touched a teeming thing, or who touched a man by whom he is made unclean. Verse 8 gives the additional stipulation of forbidding the eating of an animal which had died by itself or finding something that had been killed uh, by beasts. If the priest was was unclean from from leprosy or discharge, his cleansing from such would would come about in the way that the cleansing from such things uh, was prescribed earlier in in the book. We uh, looked at that earlier in uh, in the series If the source of uncleanness was one of these more uncommon things, again, he'd be unclean until evening, unable to eat of the holy gifts until he had bathed in water. But then verse 7 provides not a mere permission, but actually a positive command that the priest should eat of these gifts after he became clean. These things were his. They uh, were his by the Lord's gift and grant to the sons of Aaron. And then verse 9 provides the reason for these instructions. They're to keep the Lord's charge, so that they would not bear sin by profaning the holy gifts and die because of it. Though the eating envisioned here would most likely, perhaps always, take place in the home of the priest and not in the tabernacle, nevertheless, they must not be negligent in regard to keeping this charge. Otherwise, they might bring death upon them, even as Nadab and Abihu, back in chapter 10, had brought death upon them by failing to observe the Lord's commands. The Lord had sanctified these priests and therefore they must behave themselves accordingly as those who were holy, as those whom the Lord had set apart for himself. Now, let's look to to verses 10 through 16, which gives some particular stipulations about who may and who may not eat of the gifts. No layman, however, is to eat of the holy gift. A sojourner with a priest or a hired man shall not eat of the holy gift, But if a priest buys a slave as his property with money, that one may eat of it, and those who are born in his house may eat of his food. If a priest's daughter is married to a layman, she shall not eat of the offering of the gifts. But if a priest's daughter becomes a widow or divorced and has no child and returns to her father's house as in her youth, she shall eat of her father's food, but no layman shall eat of it. But if a man eats a holy gift unintentionally, then he shall add to it a fifth of it and shall give the holy gift to the priest. They shall not profane the holy gifts of the sons of Israel, which they offer to the Lord, and so cause them to bear punishment for guilt by eating their holy gifts. I am the Lord who sanctifies them. And so in verses 
10 through 16, if we could sum up and put the matter succinctly, we could say that these holy gifts belong to the priests and those who were officially part of their households. Layman, that is, uh, someone who is not a, a priest, not of the immediate connection of the priest's family, was not to eat of it. This uh, stipulation also included even a, a hired workman or, or kind of a house guest, if you will. This, uh, this mention of a, of a sojourner with the priest is essentially, I think the idea is somebody who's, who's staying at the priest's house for, for kind of an extended period of time. Uh, this one is not to eat of it, and uh, neither a hired workman who was uh, temporarily working for the priest and staying on the premises, he was not to eat of it. But a permanent slave, whether purchased or born in the household, he was allowed to eat of the gifts. Also, we see the situation in regard to the daughter. If the daughter had married a layman, then she had passed outside of his household into uh, another family, as it were, and she was not allowed to eat of the gifts anymore. But if her husband died, or if she was divorced and returned home to her father's house with no child of her own, then she could eat of the gifts once again, as she had in her youth. This shows to us the Lord's gracious care for these women who had no one else to care for them in their circumstances. And then verse 14 deals with the case, seemingly, of someone who had inadvertently eaten of the holy gifts. In such a case, they were to make restitution of what they had taken and were to add one-fifth to it. That is a double tithe, as it were. And this is in keeping with the law for guilt offerings uh, when a person acted unfaithfully and sinned intentionally against the Lord's holy things, as was laid out back in Leviticus 5, verses 14 through 16. They were to make restitution for what they had taken and also add one-fifth to it. And though not mentioned here in Leviticus 22, the regulation for the guilt offering there in Leviticus 5 said that the person who had done such was to bring a ram for a guilt offering. Not only did they have to restore what they had taken, add a fifth to it, there also needed to be a ram for a sacrifice for the guilt offering, for uh, even for this case of unintentionally eating the holy gifts. And then verses 15 and 16 wrap up the section stating uh, that they, that is seemingly the priests, were not to profane the holy gifts. And that is to say they were not to profane them by allowing unauthorized persons to eat from them. The priests are to be careful about these things so that the people would not become guilty in doing this. Again, verse 14, someone could, could unintentionally eat of these holy gifts and bring guilt upon themselves by doing so. And so the priests are supposed to, to keep these unauthorized people from eating so that those unauthorized eaters would not become guilty. This is their calling as priests, to watch out for themselves and also to watch out for others and not simply turn a blind eye uh, to others and say, well, too bad for you. They're to be watching out for others. Now let's look ahead to verses 17 through 25 as we see the, the regulations for the animals to be sacrificed. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and to his sons and to all the sons of Israel and say to them, Any man of the house of Israel or of the aliens in Israel who presents his offering whether it is any of their votive or any of their freewill offerings, which they present to the Lord for a burnt offering, for you to be accepted, it must be a male without defect from the cattle, the sheep, or the goats. Whatever has a defect, you shall not offer, for it will not be accepted for you. When a man offers a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord 
to fulfill a special vow or for a free will offering of the herd or of the flock, it must be perfect to be accepted. There shall be no defect in it. Those that are blind or fractured or maimed or have a running sore or eczema or scabs, you shall not offer to the Lord, nor make of them an offering by fire on the altar to the Lord. In respect to an ox or a lamb which has an overgrown or stunted member, you may present it for a freewill offering, but for a vow it will not be accepted. Anything with its testicles bruised or crushed or torn or cut, you shall not offer to the Lord or sacrifice in your land. Nor shall you accept any such from the hand of a foreigner for offering as the food of your God, for their corruption is in them. They have a defect. They shall not be accepted for you. So here we have the requirements for sacrifice. The early chapters of Leviticus spoke often of a male without defect being the required sacrifice for some of the the various sacrifices. And here we see the specifics of this. And there in verse 22, it lays out the things which would render an animal as unacceptable for a sacrifice. Those that are blind, fractured, maimed, have a running sore, eczema, or scabs. They should not offer animals like that to the Lord. They would not be accepted, according to verse 20. Then verse 24 has that further restriction in regard to the animal that had its testicles bruised, crushed, torn, or cut. And the connection between verse 24 and verse 25 seems to hint that perhaps foreigners from outside of Israel may have been used to offering such animals as described in verse 24, but they were not to be offered to the Lord because their corruption was in them. And so even these, even these well-meaning foreigners who might have, might have met well in bringing this kind of a sacrifice to the Lord were to be uh, forbidden from, from doing so. They Certainly bring other types of animals, but not not these, not these that had a defect, for they would not be accepted. The one exception to the rule that's given here is in the case of a freewill offering in which there was a greater latitude extended to the worshiper. According to verse 23, describes the situation of an ox or a lamb with an, an overgrown or stunted member that could be eaten, or excuse me, that could be offered in, in sacrifice, but such would not be allowed in the case when someone was offering a sacrifice for a vow that they had previously made. For that kind of offering, the sacrifice had to be perfect. But even in the case of that free will offering, that exception to the rule of verse 23, even where there's a greater latitude of what one might bring, there, there still were restrictions. It wasn't just anything you want. Even then, the blind, the lame, etc. would not be accepted. Even then, the exception to the rule was a limited exception, just in respect to the the stunted or overgrown members. Now this issue with the offering of unacceptable animals to the Lord in sacrifice, if you recall, would go on to become a significant problem for the nation of Israel, particularly in the post-exilic time. This is made clear to us in the the book of Malachi, and it might be helpful to, to look there to a few verses in Malachi chapter 1. So if you would turn with me over to Malachi 1, and we'll... Uh, We'll begin reading there in verse 6, because uh, the Lord is very clear here in in the book of Malachi uh, that this is a problem, that this does not honor him as he deserves to be honored. So Malachi 1, beginning in verse 6, he says, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? 
And if I am a master, where is my respect, says the Lord of hosts, to you, O priests who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? You are presenting defiled food upon my altar. But you say, how have we defiled you? In that you say the table of the Lord is to be despised. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? When you present the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? But now, will you not entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us? With such an offering on your part, will he receive any of you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates, that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. For from the rising of the sun even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense is going to be offered to my name and a grain offering that is pure. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you are profaning it in that you say the table of the Lord is defiled and as for its fruit, its food is to be despised. You also say, my, how how tiresome it is. And you disdainfully sniff at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring what is taken by robbery and what is lame or sick, so you bring the offering. Should I receive that from your hand, says the Lord? But cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it, but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations. Now we can see what is going on here. These people are bringing unacceptable sacrifices to the Lord, and the Lord says, should I receive this from your hand? I'm a great king, and my name is to be feared among the nations. He's worthy to be honored and reverenced, and the failure of the people here in Malachi's day to bring to the Lord what was due to him showed what was going on inside their hearts. If I can borrow the words of Michael Morales, he said, one's approach to God is the surest dissection and deepest revelation of the heart. I'll say that again. One's approach to God is the surest dissection and the deepest revelation of the heart. I think that's something worthy of our consideration. And we'll, we'll think about this some more as we, as we get to, to application. But for now, let's, let's look back to the closing verses of the chapter, verses 26 through, uh, through 33 here of Leviticus 22. And here we read this. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, When an ox or sheep or a goat is born, it shall remain seven days with its mother. And from the eighth day on, it shall be accepted as a sacrifice of an offering by fire to the Lord. But whether it is an ox or a sheep, you shall not kill both it and its young in one day. When you sacrifice a sacrifice of thanksgiving to the Lord, you shall sacrifice it so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten on the same day. You shall leave none of it until morning. I am the Lord. So you shall keep my commandments and do them. I am the Lord. You shall not profane my holy name, but I will be sanctified among the sons of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you, who brought you out from the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord." Now, in these verses, we see a few more rules in regard to to the sacrifices. 
Verse 27, we find that an animal was not to be sacrificed until it was eight days old. Now, the text doesn't give us any explicit reason as to why. The ancient Jews gave us one reason for this, saying that uh, this was for the purpose so that one Sabbath might pass over the animal, that the animal would be allowed to, to live at least for, for one Sabbath day. Uh, perhaps it has to do something with the animal gaining enough strength so that it, in its own right, could be sacrificed as an acceptable type of Christ, not in the, the weakness of being just a, a very, very newborn animal. Verse 28 forbids the sacrifice of an animal and its mother on the same day. And, and again, no specific reason is given here as to why. Some have thought this law was given to encourage mercy and to discourage cruelty. There does seem to be some parallel with what we find in Exodus 23:19, where we're told that you're not to boil a young goat in the milk of its mother. Likewise, there seems to be a parallel with Deuteronomy 22, 6 and 7, where we're told if you happen to come upon a bird's nest along the way in any tree or on the ground with young ones or eggs and the mother sitting on the young or on the eggs, you shall not take the mother with the young. You shall certainly let the mother go, but the young you may take for yourself in order that, may, that it may be well with you and that you may prolong your days. So there, there certainly does seem to be some parallel ideas between what we see here in verse 28 and what we have there in Exodus 23, Deuteronomy 22, but no explicit reason as to why is given here in the text of Leviticus 22. Now the law for the sacrifice of thanksgiving in verses 29 and 30 is essentially a restatement of what had already been said back in chapter 7 verse 15. With votive offerings and free will offerings, they had to be consumed before the third day, but these thanksgiving offerings had to be eaten upon the same day in which they were offered. This is thought to have been required in order to encourage generosity on the part of the worshiper. The meat had to be eaten that day, so you might as well be, be generous in, in giving it away so as to not let any of it go to waste. If any of it was not eaten that day, it couldn't be eaten any later. So be generous with it and give it away. And the verses 32 and 33 conclude with uh, the instructions of the chapter with a reminder that the Lord's name is not to be profaned. That he's the Lord, he's redeemed them, he's the one who sanctifies them, and therefore he must be sanctified by them. Now as we move to apply this chapter, we may well ask, what does all of this have to do with us, right? This, this seems somewhat far removed from us, right? I appreciate you all sticking with me. I realize it can be, it can be hard. But notice, notice with me how the chapter is framed. Verse 2 near the beginning, verse 32 at the end, stating that they were not to profane the Lord's holy name. The Lord is to be sanctified. He's to be regarded and treated as holy by the priests. He's the Lord who sanctified them. He's the Lord who brought them out of Egypt. He's the Lord who had redeemed them. These priests then are to treat him as holy. And the way they're to treat him as holy is to be careful in their conduct in regard to these holy gifts. They had received these gifts from the Lord and they were to act in accordance with his commands in their usage of them. And as we saw in verses 17 through 25, they were to have special care in regard with what was sacrificed. The animal taken to be sacrificed is to be male without blemish. This was to foreshadow the great and final sacrifice, the Lord Jesus Christ, who himself was a male without blemish. Now, that chapter that we read at the outset 
of our time together tonight, 1 Peter chapter 1, combines together these two things, the holiness that is incumbent upon us as God's redeemed people and also the spotlessness of our sacrificial lamb, Jesus Christ. Listen again with me to the words of 1 Peter 1, beginning in verse 14. He says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance, but, like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. If you address as the Father one who impartially judges according to each one's work, Conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. And you can see the parallels between the ideas of Leviticus 22 and the ideas of 1 Peter chapter 1. The Lord had delivered his people from Egypt and sanctified them. Therefore, they were to have a care in their behavior so as not to profane the Lord's holy name. And even so, 1 Peter chapter 1, the Holy One had called these people, these Christians, out of darkness, out of a futile way of life that they had received from their forefathers. And they now, as those redeemed of the Lord, are to be holy in all of their behavior. Peter says they are to conduct themselves with fear, that is, with reverence toward the Lord in their conduct, because they had been redeemed. And Peter points specifically to the means by which they had been redeemed, the means by which they had been redeemed as a motivating factor for them in conducting their lives in this fear and reverence. What was the means of their redemption? Well, it was the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. In other words... The means of their redemption was the true spotless sacrifice, the one toward which all of these unblemished males that were offered in the Old Testament times were, were pointing ahead to. All of those sacrifices were pointing ahead to Jesus Christ, the true unblemished and spotless lamb. That was why they were required to be without blemish. That was why they couldn't be sick or maimed or blind or lame was because Jesus Christ himself, the true sacrifice, would be without blemish and spotless. And in this way, both Leviticus 22 and 1 Peter 1 show us how necessary it is that we honor the Lord and treat him as holy. In the Old Testament times, this was done in certain ceremonial ways as prescribed by the law. Just think again to Malachi 1. Think of how their behavior there in the post-exilic time period was so dishonoring to the Lord and how the Lord was incensed in anger at them. And as we've seen here in Leviticus 22, the priests are to make sure that no unauthorized persons ate of the sacrifices. They themselves were not to eat of the sacrifices when they were unclean, therefore unfit to do so. Those particular ceremonial laws obviously have passed away now with the coming of Christ. But the requirement to honor the Lord has not passed away. The requirement to reverence the Lord and to live holy before Him on account of Christ, those things abide. Those things are incumbent upon us. And so obviously this has moral implications for us and that we must turn away from sin and pursue righteousness. And 
in connection with this matter of reverence for the Lord, that is, true fear of God, true love for God, true trust in God. If you were with us several months ago in, uh, in Sunday school, we, we considered this a little bit when we, when we spoke of Christian piety or, or godliness. And I, I tried to make the point uh, back during that lesson that a lot of times when we think of godliness, we think of it just as a synonym for holiness or as a synonym for moral uprightness. But there are some nuances that are, that are different. And I think Jerry Bridges made the point quite well when he said that it is possible to be very orthodox in one's doctrine and very upright in one's behavior and still not be godly. Many people are orthodox and upright, but they are not devoted to God. They are devoted to their orthodoxy and their standards of moral conduct. And this is not to suggest that we want some of those things at the expense of others. We want them all. We want to be orthodox. We want to be morally upright. And we also want to be devoted to God. We want them all. We must have them all. This means that we must never, therefore, settle for orthodoxy alone or for morality alone. Those things must be present, but they must be present in that they flow from genuine godliness, a genuine fear of God, a genuine love for God from a heart that is truly devoted to God and trusts God. A heart that is devoted truly to God in that way will show itself in certain ways. The problem with those people in Malachi 1 in the offering of those sacrifices was that it was pointing again to their heart. Again, one's approach to God is the surest dissection and deepest revelation of the heart. And what those people were showing in Malachi 1 was that they were not devoted to God. They just wanted to get the job done. Whatever's out there, blind, lame, let's sacrifice it, let's get it done. Now how about us? What's the status of our heart? Are we glad when it is said, let us go to the house of the Lord? What's the inward condition of our hearts with respect to prayer, with respect to to being in the word, with respect to honoring the Lord in those recesses of our hearts that no one else can see? Are we profaning the Lord's name in the inner recesses of our hearts, or are we honoring the Lord's name? It was said by, by one preacher years ago, centuries ago, he said, we are never better affected unto God than when we pray. Yet when we pray, how are our affections many times distracted? How little reverence do we show unto the grand majesty of the God unto whom we speak? How little remorse of our own miseries? How little taste of the sweet influence of his tender mercies do we feel? Are we not as unwilling many times to begin and as glad to make an end as if in saying, call upon me, he had set us a very burdensome task. That's kind of convicting, isn't it? If when we approach prayer, we're slow to begin and very glad to be done. That's, di- that's, that's kind of diagnosing the situation of our hearts. And I would venture to say that many of our hearts have much room to grow in respect to the, the reverence the love, the trust that we, that we truly owe to God. And I know for certain that I'll put myself first on, on that list. We must conduct ourselves, Peter says, in fear, that is, in reverence of God during our stay here. We must, as these priests were required to do, we must sanctify the Lord. And so by his grace, 
Let's do it. But in seeking to do it, let's not be discouraged. Convicting though this may be, the good news of the gospel is that even all of the defects in our piety, all of our sins by which we do not reverence God as we ought, and all other sins as well, are covered by the blood of that unblemished lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. All of our blemishes, all of our defects, are covered by him, and he has none. And even that, then, should furnish us with fresh reason to devote our hearts, our lives, and all that we are to our gracious and loving Lord. Please pray with me. Our Father, when we consider who you are and when we consider who we are and how we reverence you or how we fail to do so, Lord, we see how short we fall. You are a great king. You will be honored from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting. And Lord, we ask that you would be honored by us as well. Lord, we pray that you would, that you would fill our hearts with love for you, that we would realize how great and wonderful you are. Lord, we pray that we would sanctify you, that we would honor you, that we would lead holy and godly lives we would be truly devoted to you in our hearts and that from that devotion of our hearts to you that all the rest would follow. We would be obedient to you in all things that we would trust you, cling tightly to Christ. We ask for your help because we know that we are weak. We pray that you strengthen us. In Jesus' name, amen.